Hey friends, today is the day. The TED Talk just landed. So go to YouTube, search TEDx, Kelly Casperson, adult sex ed will unbreak the world. You'll find me and we're going to make this go viral. So I need your help. I need you to like, I need you to comment, and I need you to share it with somebody who you think really needs to hear this talk, whether that's a patient or another doctor or your sister or your daughter or yourself. Let's make this go viral. This is an idea worth spreading, and I'm so excited that you guys are on this journey with me. Let's do it. All right, without further ado, enjoy today's amazing podcast with Dr. Avram Blooming, author, co-author of Estrogen Matters, just a brilliant, brilliant oncologist who fights for not only equality, but empowerment of women getting what is right for their bodies and not living in fear. So I hope you enjoy. Bye-bye. You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have Dr. Blooming on today. Dr. Blooming received his MD from the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and then he spent four years as a senior investigator for the National Cancer Institute. He organized the first study of lumpectomy for the treatment of breast cancer in Southern California in 1978. And for more than two decades, he's been studying the benefits and risks of hormone replacement therapy administered to women with a history of breast cancer. Dr. Blooming has served as a clinical professor of medicine at USC and is the co-author of Estrogen Matters, Why Taking Hormones in Menopause Can Improve Women's Well-Being and Lengthen Their Lives Without Raising the Risk of Breast Cancer. Thank you so much for coming today. It's my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. For the uninitiated, which if people have been listening to me, there there shouldn't be any. But quickly, can you tell your story about how you became the advocate for hormones and then specifically hormones after breast cancer? Sure. I'm a medical oncologist and breast cancer constituted about 60% of my practice. I treated many women with breast cancer and I've watched the cure rate increase rapidly during my career so that now early breast cancer diagnosed today carries a 90 plus percent cure rate. And I use that word carefully. That's a wonderful statistic. And since many of the women I saw were premenopausal and I gave many of them chemotherapy when it was appropriate, I helped induce premature menopause in these women. Not all women who get chemotherapy go into menopause, but many, especially in their mid-40s, early 50s, do. And these women would complain to me about the symptoms that I had brought on. And I heard their complaints, and I was sympathetic. But the obvious balance that I felt, although didn't always express it this way, is you had breast cancer, and there is a very strong likelihood you are cured. So why don't you suck it up and enjoy the rest of your life? And many of them were hesitant to talk about the symptoms, and I didn't go into them extensively because there was nothing I was doing about them. And then my my wife answered at age 47, and I treated her, and I treated her with chemotherapy, And she went into a precipitous menopause and she experienced the symptoms of menopause, the hot flushes, the night sweats, the insomnia, frequent urinary tract infections, the palpitations, the arthralgias, and she never complained about them for a moment. She's a very strong woman and she is certainly not a complainer. And then she noticed that when she was reading a book, she couldn't remember what she had read two or three pages back. And she is a very intelligent, avid book reader. And that side effect was intolerable. I'll call it brain fog, but it was intolerable. And I started looking into the symptoms of menopause. I found first that they don't last one or two years, so that suck it up is a reasonable course of action. They last the median of 7.4 years. And in women of color, they last longer than that, 10 years. They affect close to 80% of all women who go into menopause. 
and they can be life-altering. I know, Kelly, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And I started taking it very seriously. I started speaking to the women under my care about their symptoms and was amazed to find how grateful they are that I would just listen to the symptoms. I wasn't doing anything, but I was at least sympathizing with what they were going through. And then I looked for ways to deal with the symptoms. And obviously, since estrogen is the leading hormone that is depressed in women who go through menopause, estrogen was studied, and it's been studied extensively. And what I found is that the association between estrogen and breast cancer was not as strong as most of us thought and were taught. And it resolved menopausal symptoms in clearly over 80% of cases. Nothing else comes close to that. Not only that, it helped prevent heart disease when given at the appropriate time. It helped prevent osteoporotic hip fracture. It helped prevent colon cancer, diabetes. And in the late 1990s, there are reports estimating that if all the women in the United States started hormone replacement therapy in their mid-40s, the median survival of women across the country would rise by about three and a half years. Now, I'm not proposing that that be done, but it certainly caused me to look very seriously at the pros and cons of hormone replacement therapy. As a result of that experience, as you mentioned, I started a prospective study for women who gave permission, who signed informed consent, that they would go on hormone replacement therapy, even after a diagnosis of fully treated breast cancer. And I have subsequently found over 25 studies, there are now 26 studies in the medical literature and languages that I can understand that looked at this. And of the 26 studies, 25 show no increased risk of recurrence among women who take hormones after completing treatment for their primary breast cancer. The one study that showed an increased risk, which you know about, is the Swedish study called HABITS, Hormones After Breast Cancer, Is It Safe? That's an acronym. And that one study is the only one that showed an increased risk of recurrence. But in that situation, the increase was only local increase or increased risk of contralateral breast cancer with no increased risk of distant metastases and no increased risk of death from breast cancer. The one sentence that I use to criticize this study, and then I'll stop talking and you can go on to the next question, is this is a study that found only local recurrence as their reported increase, and yet mandatory mammograms at the start of the study for women with treated breast cancer were not done. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Was there something about it was only in women who were currently on tamoxifen too, or am I thinking of a different study? You're thinking of a different study. Okay. Yeah. So I, I want to pick apart this estrogen and cancer kerfuffle that we've gotten us in. I think about this a lot of like, why are we still here 20 years after the Women's Health Initiative? I think it's our training and understanding basic science concepts and certainly more complex things like absolute risk, relative risk. But I think the average human doesn't understand correlation doesn't equal causation. And I think that's a screaming example in the estrogen and breast cancer. So do you think a lot of this is just poor education to our population? Or like we must find a culprit to explain the overly complex disease that we call cancer? Well, I think there are two issues here. First, it's not just the general public that isn't as well educated as we would like. It is physicians. You're a urologist. You know that menopause is not widely taught to physicians who are getting their MD degrees. I was amazed to find that less than 25% of OBGYN doctors receive education about menopause during their training. And for many of them, it's several hours of education. That's all. 
for a four-year study, that's terrible. But I think the other part of it is the role of women in society. I'm obviously a guy. Women aren't treated equally in this society, and you certainly don't need me to talk about that, but it is so embedded in our culture. I found, for example, we all know what the term vagina refers to. And the vagina is the path that the fetus follows to get life. What a wonderful, wonderful place in a woman's body that is. Well, you know, vagina is Latin for scabbard. It doesn't talk about coming into life. It talks about being a scabbard or a sheath. Well, guess what it's a scabbard for? That's ridiculous. In everyday language, I was just thinking last night in preparation for this, we all know what a nymphomaniac is. You know what the male word equivalent for nymphomaniac is? Male nymphomaniac? Yeah, there is no such thing. It's accepted that for men, that's a good thing. There is prejudice so built in that we don't constantly think about how we can equalize the way women are treated within our medical system. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my superpower in coming into sex and hormones is because I was trained to take care of men. So I see how I treat, we treat men. We're like, you have low testosterone, have some testosterone. Your sex life isn't as great, have some Viagra. We treat women very, very differently. And I think I just see that lens. So Because the OB-GYNs don't take care of men, right? They don't have this group of population that we're fine with hormones. We encourage it. And then, you know, not for with women. The Travers study just came out, New England Journal paper, looking at high-risk heart disease men. We put them on testosterone because we wanted to know if it was safe in this really high-risk heart disease men. These men were sick already, right? And then we put them on hormones which we haven't done that really equivalent in women. We're just trying to get like healthy women on hormones, right? And they're like, no, it's not any worse than placebo. And I'm like, that's great. That made the New England Journal of Medicine. But in there, it says testosterone is an increased risk of atrial fib, pulmonary embolism, and something else I forget. But like not that important because it wasn't worse than placebo in hurting men with high risk for heart disease. And I'm like, this paper would be front and central on CNN saying hormones cause has higher rate of AFib. It, w- it would be so different if this was a paper on women and hormones. You can't make this stuff up. The gender bias is so real. Yes. I see women over and over in my clinic and they're just afraid and afraid and afraid and it's fear. And, and it's like, it's in the ether. They can't tell me even where this fear for estrogen comes from. And I'm like, what's the point of having 50% of the population be so afraid? And my conclusion is it's a way to control women. If we control them by keeping them afraid, then we have control over them and their body and everything else. Because I'm like, what else is the point of having all these people afraid all the time? Do you have any insight of like the power of fear and why we insist on freaking these people out so much more than the men? I agree with you about the power of fear. I don't know enough to ascribe motivation to the reason women are kept afraid but there is absolutely no question that they are. And when you look at the balance of benefit and risks for postmenopausal hormones for treatment of women, benefits so far outweigh risk. And you have to ask, and I don't know the answer, why isn't that message being given in a more objective way? Yeah, if there was a pill that a man could take between ages 50 and 60 that made him live four years longer, every single person would be on it. Oh, if men had seven and a half years of symptoms that interfered with the quality of life, that made sex no longer pleasant and even painful, and we said to them, suck it up, what do you think the likelihood is that that would happen? That's why I love throwing up the window on the gender bias, because like if there was a pill that decreased a man's risk of colon cancer by 30%, they would be a blockbuster medication. They'd all be on. And estrogen was a blockbuster medication. We have it. In the 90s, yes. Mm-hmm. The use of it has fallen from 
something around the order of 44% of eligible women to less than 5% since 2002. And that's where it stays today. That's where it stays. We're trying to make a difference. Um, Let's dispel some myths because I think people, they get hung up on saying these things and they don't ever question it. Estrogen receptor positive status in a breast cancer does not mean estrogen caused the cancer. But everybody throws that around of like, yeah, but I'm estrogen positive. And what they, what I think they mean by that is estrogen caused the cancer, so I can never be on it. I should be afraid of estrogen. As an oncologist, can you dispel that for us? Yes, it's not true. Why do I, why don't oncologists tell women this? They all come in thinking that estrogen caused their cancer. Well, I don't know what causes breast cancer, and when I say that, some people are surprised how humble I am. I've been an oncologist for half a century. How could you not know what causes breast cancer? You said 60% of your practice was breast cancer. Well, it is humble in one way, but it's arrogant in another way, because I know that nobody knows what causes breast cancer, regardless of what we are told. We also know that women have 100 times the incidence of breast cancer as do men. And obviously, it is reasonable, although not correct, to say, well, that must be because women have more estrogen than men do. That makes logical sense, but it's not correct. But women postmenopausally have less estrogen than men do. You've made the point on your show before that if estrogen really were responsible for breast cancer, then as women age, we wouldn't find that age is almost as important as gender in the risk for breast cancer. The older a woman gets, the more likely she is to develop breast cancer. And we should see a rapid tapering of that incidence around menopause for since the majority of women don't take hormones, and we don't. The incidence continues to rise. In addition, we know that estrogen was the first medication that was used to treat breast cancer before we had more medicines, and reports showed a 44% reduced reduction in measurable breast cancer among women who were getting estrogen in the 1940s. Amazing. Can you also dispel the myth, because I see this a lot too, your lifetime exposure to estrogen. So the myth that early puberty and late menopause is a breast cancer risk. But then women who have multiple pregnancies who have super high estrogen have a lower risk of breast cancer. So I think people take this dogma and you write about it in your book of like, that's not actually true, this lifetime exposure worry. I think you've just dispelled it. We know, and you mentioned this in previous podcasts, a woman before the age of 20 who has a full-term delivery reduces her risk of breast cancer by 70%, her lifetime risk of breast cancer. Well, if lifetime exposure to estrogen were true, that would not be true. And multiple pregnancies would not be protective as they are against the risk of developing breast cancer. Again, it's just a way of reinforcing a simplistic but incorrect assumption. Love it. I think another big myth is how aromatase inhibitors work. People call them estrogen blockers. So because of that, people think estrogen causes cancer and causes recurrence. But we only give aromatase inhibitors to postmenopausal breast cancer survivors. Can you suss out why are we using aromatase inhibitors? Why are they helpful? And kind of why we think estrogen's still the baddie? Let me back up a little and say that the first hormonal manipulation that we used to use was actually removing a woman's ovaries once she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And removing a woman's ovaries when she had active breast cancer has an associated response rate. So that, yes, we're removing the estrogen that a woman is making, and we could see breast cancer shrink when it was measurable. Not in all women, but in a reasonable number. It was such a good approach, and we had nothing else, that when a woman started having progression of the cancer, in spite of that, we then removed her adrenal glands because the adrenals in a postmenopausal woman also make a certain amount of estrogen. When that stopped working, 
We then started removing the woman's pituitary gland at the base of her brain because that stimulates the ovaries and the adrenal glands to make estrogen. As a urologist, you know, we never did that kind of mutilating surgery on men, even though about as many men die of prostate cancer in this country each year as women die of breast cancer. And all of those surgical treatments, removing the ovaries, removing the adrenal glands, removing the pituitary gland, were based on the assumption that all we had to do is reduce estrogen to get a response. That was not a completely accurate approach, but it was the best we had, so we did it a lot. And then in the late 1970s, Craig Jordan was able to help bring to market tamoxifen. And tamoxifen was a pill, not a surgical procedure, that was initially developed as a contraceptive. It didn't make it as a contraceptive. And Dr. Jordan was able to use what we knew about it to move it into the field of treatment of breast cancer. And it was first sold as an estrogen blocker, saying that the estrogen receptor on the surface of breast cells has room for estrogen to attach to the receptor. And when estrogen attaches to that receptor, it stimulates proliferation of an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer cell. And because we assumed that was the way it acted, we were taught, and I was a practicing physician at the time tamoxifen first came out, that it should be used only on postmenopausal, not premenopausal women. That if it really works by blocking the estrogen's access to an estrogen receptor, it would only work when a woman has very little circulating estrogen. That estrogen is a more powerful activator than tamoxifen is a blocker. And so we were told you can't give it to premenopausal women, it won't work. And surprise, it works better on premenopausal women than it does even on postmenopausal women. And that's in spite of the fact that when a premenopausal woman gets tamoxifen, her circulating estrogen levels can rise four or five fold, clearly overwhelming any ability of tamoxifen to compete for an estrogen receptor binding site. We now know that tamoxifen works in at least 10 different ways outside of the estrogen receptor, that it even works on some cases of estrogen receptor negative breast cancer, and it only works on 40 to 50% of women with estrogen receptor positive cancer. So thinking that estrogen is the cause of the cancer proliferation and tamoxifen is the way to block it is no longer valid. And we no longer call tamoxifen an estrogen receptor blocker. We now call it a CIRM, which is an acronym for Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulation. I don't really know what that means, and neither does anybody, but it's a vague enough term that it allows us to get away with using it without getting into even more detail. Now, that's a long-winded introduction to your question about aromatase inhibitors. Aromatase inhibitors came after tamoxifen, and unlike tamoxifen, whose mode of action we don't understand thoroughly, aromatase inhibitors work by blocking an enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase's action is to convert testosterone in the female body into estrogen. Women first make testosterone, and it's only through that pathway that most of the estrogen in the body accumulates. And if we block the enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen, we significantly lower the circulation of estrogen. You should get a response. And in postmenopausal women who don't have a lot of circulating estrogen, aromatase inhibitors do work. Again, not on 100% of women treated, but they do work. And that brings you back to your first question. Well, wait, if estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer or doesn't stimulate the growth of breast cancer, why do aromatase inhibitors work since you're telling me that they work primarily by lowering the level of estrogen? That is true. 
And I don't know the answer to that. But postmenopausal women are told that aromatase inhibitors are more effective than tamoxifen. And they are in head-to-head trials when they're used for the treatment of postmenopausal women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. But the difference, the benefit of aromatase inhibitors is less than 5% greater than the ability of tamoxifen to do the same thing. So it's not a slam dunk that every postmenopausal woman should be on aromatase inhibitors. If for some, the balance of benefit and risk is greater with tamoxifen than it is with aromatase inhibitors. Yeah, I see a lot of aromatase inhibitors where I practice. And again, I'm biased because they're coming to see me because they have genital urinary syndrome of menopause, you know, hormone discussions, but they're miserable. I don't see the happy, I don't have a problem with aromatase inhibitor. Like, you know, I have a biased door to my clinic. But I'm wondering, are you seeing a pendulum maybe swinging on if you have stage one breast cancer, going to be able to not be on an aromatase inhibitor? Like, did we, you know, we overtreat and then we kind of back off. Are we there yet with breast cancer? Oh, absolutely. Not the way we are with prostate cancer, Dr. Urologist. As you know, watchful waiting is now an unacceptable approach to many, not all men, with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. That's right. But in female breast cancer, we've gone from mastectomies, radical mastectomies, to lumpectomy, usually with radiotherapy. But lumpectomy alone is now a reasonable course of action for some women. We've gone from extensive axillary dissection, taking out all the lymph nodes we could find under the affected arm of the woman, to now only doing sampling for sentinel lymph nodes. In women who have negative lymph nodes, we've gone from treating all of them with chemotherapy to treating a minority with chemotherapy. We've gone of treating hormonal therapy, either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor or another drug in that broad category, giving to every woman with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And now we're treating fewer and fewer. Instead of treating for five years and 10 years, there is now a study looking at three years, which seems to be as good on a lower dose, at least as good on a lower dose than five years. And yes, we are moving in that direction, but it's slow and it is compounded by our ignorance. We still don't know why some breast cancers proliferate and kill and others don't. In spite of the wonderful cure rate, we don't want to lose any patients. I would only point out what you already know in that we are much more progressive in reducing morbidity-associated treatments with prostate cancer that affects men than we are with breast cancer that affects women. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've talked to women, they're like, I'm not afraid of breast cancer. I'm going to cure it. We've got great... They're like, I'm afraid of the aromatase inhibitor. Oh, well, I'm more afraid of breast cancer. Fair enough. But like they, these women, like they know the breast cancer is going to be treated and it's going to be fine, but they're worried about like their quality of life on 10 years of this aromatase inhibitor. Which brings up the, the important issue that that fear that they have should not simply be dismissed. A doctor shouldn't say, listen, lady, I'm going to get rid of your breast cancer and I don't want to be bothered with extraneous issues. Eric Weiner, who is the recent past president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the largest association of medical oncologists in the world, recently gave a presidential talk that was dedicated to physician-patient cooperation in treatment. And that is a very important goal, so that women shouldn't be dismissed, their questions and their complaints should be listened to and addressed, and a course of action should be worked out between the physician and the patient that is mutually acceptable. I think we've totally forgotten about that. I think a lot of doctors are very afraid of being sued. Like if they put people on hormones after breast cancer or even hormones, then when we're not even talking about breast cancer, that they're going to get sued because of a future breast cancer. Are there lawsuits about this? Are doctors well-founded in this fear? 
I can't give you the incidents, but as you know, in this country, anybody can be sued by anybody for anything. And suits are a real problem in this country. But if that is your motivating concern, then draw up an informed consent form where the patient says, the doctor explained to me the potential risks and benefits associated with this treatment. And based on my current feeling, I am willing to accept those risks. That informed consent form is not an absolute protection against being sued, but it's a legitimate approach to the problem that should turn off the majority of those kinds of concerns. I'm going to beat this this estrogen breast cancer thing for just a little bit more because this is I get this all the time from women. What's the deal with adipose tissue? So we know that overweight has a higher risk of breast cancer. People say, and you'll see this on like the Mayo Clinic, don't quote me, but like big websites will be like, because the adipose tissue produces estrogen. Is it a different kind of estrogen? I've heard estrone as an option, or is it the inflammatory state that comes from adiposity? How do you wrap your head around the risk of adipose tissue increasing your risk for breast cancer? Let me state again, and it's not comfortable to say, I don't know what causes breast cancer. And so while it is tempting to grab onto something, we have to temper that temptation and say, we don't really know. What we are finding out is the entire issue of breast cancer being a single cell that develops an abnormal mutation and proliferates out of control and spreads through the body until it kills the patient is not a correct paradigm for what cancer is. And that's the subject of an entirely different program, but it's not a correct paradigm. And yet we still use it because we don't know better, although there are people looking desperately to find out. To talk about adipose tissue that stores estrogen or that can supply estrogen to neighboring glandular tissue misses the fact that what we used to think were clear margins because we said we can identify the pathologic cancer cell and separate it from the normal connective tissue in which it sits, no longer makes sense. We now know that the normal connective tissue often feeds the cells that we call cancer. And so thinking that you're removing everything and thereby eliminating the cancer is just coming up against the brick wall of our ignorance. We've got to do better than that. Wonderful. But when it, when you read the things of like, oh, overweight people have higher risk of breast cancer because it's the estrogen. Is that like they've taken too many leaps in that one sentence? It doesn't hold up with data. It's important to collect data that may help prevent a better picture of this terrible disease. But don't mistake individual data points for truth and an explanation of the whole picture. Beautiful. I have a question about estrogen and osteoporosis. So estrogen is FDA approved for the prevention of osteoporosis. Why did the United States Preventative Services Task Force say that we, this is probably five questions, shouldn't use hormones as preventative, right? And then why are we screening for osteoporosis at age 65, which is most of what the guidelines are, if that's past our safety window, our best safety window for being on hormones and menopause, like, are these two schools just not talking to each other? There are a lot of points of discussion in that one question. First of all, what is the United States Public Services Task Force? I was, I'll give you my opinion, but I'm a urologist. Give me your opinion, please. So it's a bunch of people who are advising what Medicare should pay for. And urologists already don't like them because remember, they told us not to screen for prostate cancer as public health. And what's happened now is we have so much more metastatic advanced prostate cancer because we stopped screening on a population thing. So the urolo urologists are already like, I don't know if I trust these people because they did that with prostate cancer. I don't know why they call themselves the United States Public Service Task Force. They are not an official organ of the government in any way. 
They are not hired by any United States organization that's government affiliated to provide guidelines for care. They are respected academic physician scientists who comb through the data and come up with what they think are reasonable guidelines, but it shouldn't be confused with an organized governmental policy organization because it's not. Second, they are dependent upon the science that is generated in the medical literature, some of which is very good and some of which is not so good and some of which is bad. And they're people just like we are people and they do their best to come up with guidelines. But as you point out, their guidelines are not always correct guidelines. That's really the best answer I can give you. Perfect. I mean, as soon as they came out with like, hormones should not be used as primary prevention of any disease, right? People are like, what do you think? And how I digested it was, as a population, we don't just want to throw everybody on a medication. The bar is very high. We don't even do that with aspirin. So it's very high to throw everybody on a medication. And they're saying, don't throw everybody on a medication. But I think people misinterpreted it to say, you, should, you shouldn't be on hormones because they said, don't be on hormones. And I think that's a misinterpretation of what they said. Do you interpret it differently? You're right. It could be an overgeneralization, but I didn't answer your question specifically about hip fracture. And yes, it's important to note that the number of people who die within one year of a hip fracture is comparable to the number who die each year of breast cancer. Hip fracture, even if it doesn't result in death, is debilitating and can affect quality of life. And the best preventive treatment for osteoporotic hip fracture is perimenopausal and menopausal estrogen therapy. It is better than the bisphosphonates. It's much better than calcium and vitamin D. It works, and it works indefinitely as long as a woman continues to take it. Once a woman stops taking estrogen, her bone starts to lose elasticity so that by four or five years after she stops, it has lost any benefit that it might have gained during the years that she was taking it. And it's the best treatment. It reduces that risk by up to 50%. But if we're not even screening for osteoporosis until age 65... See, that's the, the other part of your question. I said there were so many parts. How do we screen for osteoporosis? We get a bone mineral density study. Is that a good screening test? No, it is not. Because what you lose in osteoporosis is not only bone density, you lose the elasticity of the collagen fibers within the bone. And it's that elasticity that allows bone to stretch without breaking. The best screening test would be to take a bone in the body and put it in a vise and see how much pressure you had to apply before you snap the bone. Well, clearly that's not a good screening test, but that would be a screening test. Bone mineral density, while we use it, correlates very poorly with bone fracture, especially with hip fracture, over time. And if you're concerned only about bone mineral density, you can take, and I'm not suggesting anybody do this, you can take oral fluoride. Fluoride pills will improve bone density. They will make the bone so dense that when you have a bone mineral density study, your doctor will say, wow, what are you taking? The problem is it makes bone even less elastic. And even though the bone is increasingly dense, it increases the risk for bone fracture. Yeah, I, th I think you explained that really well in your book of why calcium, although makes it denser, doesn't make it stronger. Right. You know, the urologists are taking it all the way to the bank because in the 70s, women had one eighth the amount of kidney stones as men. 
And my, and I have not seen great papers on this, but we took everybody off of estrogen. We scared them about osteoporosis. We did a huge calcium publicity thing with milk, et cetera. We threw them all on calcium supplements. They are equal to men in their rate of kidney stones now. I think it's because, you know, when diet calcium's best, but when you take it in supplement form, it just goes straight through your kidneys and then makes nice little stones. I defer to your expertise. You can put that in your next edition of the book. <laughs> the other thing that calcium supplements do to you. So everybody's talking about the brain now and dementia, like because as much as you and I care about it, nobody cares about heart disease, which is the number one killer. And it's embarrassing. But so we've moved beyond heart disease again. And now we're talking about the brain again. And this crappy Danish study that just came out saying hormone therapy increases risk of dementia. And then all the experts had to claw it back and say, no, it didn't. These people were unhealthy to begin with, et cetera, et cetera. What's your take on dementia, prevention, hormones, any updates since your 2018 book? There has never been a clear study that is prospectively randomized and blinded, looking to see whether hormone prevents Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And there never will be. Our ability to diagnose dementia is iffy. It's not as clear as diagnosing other organic diseases. It would take a very long time. It would be prohibitively expensive and we wouldn't be able to do it. What we do know is women who have their ovaries taken out while they are premenopausal have a higher risk of dementia than women who don't, suggesting that the estrogen they no longer have might have helped prevent cognitive decline. We also know that Healthy women who start hormones within 10 years of their last menstrual period do have a decreased risk of cognitive decline if they take hormones compared to women who didn't take hormones. We know those facts. We spoke in the beginning uh, about how fear generates headlines and therefore makes studies public. And if there's one issue women are more concerned about, than breast cancer, it's dementia. And so what a wonderful way to generate fear yet again and cause women not to look to hormones for increased longevity and increased health. This particular study that was published in the British Medical Journal within the past two months looked at 5,000 women who had developed dementia and compared them to 55,000 women who didn't develop dementia. And why this can be done in Denmark is because they have a government-sponsored prescription program. These people could look at which women were taking hormones if they developed dementia, and is there any correlation? And if we look at what they found first, if you take 5,000 women who took hormones and 55,000 women who didn't take hormones, and you retrospectively comb those data for associations, you will come up with so many. And if they looked at green Chevy Camaros, they may have found that really that was a risk factor. What they looked at was are more of the women who were diagnosed with dementia taking estrogen compared to the women who didn't develop dementia? And the answer was no. And they then looked to see, well, what about progesterone? Were there more women who developed dementia who had taken progesterone compared to the women who didn't develop dementia? And the answer was no. And then you look at women who took the combination of estrogen and progesterone, which as you know, is used for women who still have a uterus if they're taking estrogen, because estrogen alone increases the risk of uterine cancer, a risk that is eliminated if progesterone is added to the regimen. So for women who were taking estrogen and progesterone, they did find a statistically significant increased risk of dementia. What was the increased risk? I think the the women who didn't develop dementia 35% of them had been on hormones. And for the women who did develop dementia, 
38% had been on hormones. That's the difference. I, I don't know what Chevy Camaros would look like if they had really looked at that. That that was published is shameful, shameful, because it generates meaningless anxiety and causes a flow against hormone use, which could be life-saving and life-enhancing. And I'm not proselytizing for hormone, but I am for accurate data and appropriate interpretation. Yeah. I want your opinion on the progestin because some people are fine saying, fine, estrogen's fine. It's the progestin in the Women's Health Initiative combo use. So a couple of different theories. Number one, the placebo arm was bad which you don't bring up in your book. So I'm curious about that. Number two, it's the fact that it's synthetic and wasn't micronized. The third theory being the risk is not actually that high. It's 2% risk to 4% risk. So it's not actually that high of a risk. The benefit is worth the risk of it. Where do you land on these different theories about the progesterone arm? Well, we have to go back to the Women's Health Initiative here, which was publicized by press conference in July of 2002. And only a week later did it appear in the Journal of the American Medical Association so that physicians could actually see the data on which they made their conclusions. And when they first came out in July of 2002 with the press conference, the New York Times headlined that it causes stroke, it increases the risk for dementia, it increases the risk for heart attack, and it increases the risk for breast cancer. All, every single one of those conclusions has been walked back by the Women's Health Initiative in the absence of a press conference saying that. It turns out that estrogen alone in the Women's Health Initiative for women who didn't have a uterus who were randomized to take hormones was associated, now this is with 20 years of follow-up, with a 23% statistically significant reduced risk of breast cancer and, wait for it, a 40% decreased risk of dying of breast cancer. These are women who never had breast cancer, but it reduced their risk and their risk of dying of breast cancer. Progesterone alone, and they didn't study progesterone alone, was used in the beginning when we started looking at tamoxifen and found to be capable of reducing breast cancer with measurable breast cancer in women who had metastatic tumor, at least as well as tamoxifen. But it carried a higher risk of fluid retention and discomfort, so tamoxifen won. And what the Women's Health Initiative was left with in the 2002 study was a statistically insignificant increased risk when women used the combination of estrogen and progesterone together statistically insignificant. The next year, they came out with another study saying, well, now it's statistically significant by a hair's breadth. And subsequent studies did not find statistical significance. The ones that did hold on to statistical significance, which women's health initiatives investigators, not all, still say, they say, the combination doesn't increase the risk of death from breast cancer, but it increases the risk of developing breast cancer. That's not true. That is due, as you referred to, to a misinterpretation that the Women's Health Initiative did of their own data. I'd be happy to get into that. I find that I can be verbose and it might be confusing and I refer you to articles in the literature that discuss it clearly with graphs, but they're misinterpreting their own data. And there's no increased risk with the combination. There's certainly no increased risk of death. And there are lots of benefits of hormone replacement therapy. Do you think that we just need to work on a rebrand? Like, what if the rebrand is like, go on hormone replacement therapy, because if you do get breast cancer, you'll do better than if you weren't on it? Well, first, that is a statement of fact. Women who are diagnosed with breast cancer while on hormones have a better prognosis stage for stage than women who are diagnosed who are not on hormones. I think we just have to, as you are doing, make the data more widespread. Women have to rise up 
and say, I'm going to challenge what my doctor explains to me. And I want an explanation that allows for my challenges and convinces me or else I'm going to follow what I think is right. Yeah, absolutely. So I posted something this week and I said, why aren't boomers more pissed? Because they missed the safety window. And I got tons of replies saying like, we are pissed. What do we do about it? Right. So my question is, the more we say, yes, estrogen safe, there's like that hard cutoff of 10 years, which the experts know is not a hard cutoff. How would you approach that 63-year-old, that 65-year-old? Maybe she has symptoms, maybe she doesn't. Do you do a calcium score, work her up for cardiovascular disease first? Or do you really say like, at some point, sorry, it's too late? Why is that 10-year window? felt to be important. It's felt to be important because the increased risk, although it was small, the increased risk of stroke, for example, is seen or heart attack is seen more often among women who are more than 10 years postmenopausal. And the question is why? And the best answer that I've been able to find is young blood vessels, young arteries, are distensible. As arteries get older, and this is true for all of us, they get narrowed and less distensible. So that if you take a drug like estrogen, which has the potential for taking platelets in the blood, these are small, normal corks that circulate in the blood and help prevent bleeding. If they form a platelet plug, they can block an already narrowed artery. And it is thought that this increased risk of, say, stroke or coronary artery disease seen among women who were more than 10 years postmenopausal may be due to further blockage of one of these vital arteries. This problem, which I think we have to take very seriously, was not seen uniformly. It was seen in a minority of people. And it was seen primarily during the first year of starting hormones and rapidly diminished as a problem once a woman was on the hormones for more than a year. What that presents us with is a benefit-risk calculation that could be part of the discussion. How miserable are you? How much at risk are you of other serious problems? And is it worth the extra risk of taking it if you are more than 10 years postmenopausal. And that was oral estrogen too, because it was WHI data, where most experts would say, okay, well, even if they're over 10 years, if they're a great candidate, you're going to start on a transdermal to decrease that clot risk. Let's talk about the clot risk for a minute. Okay. First of all, the risk I just spoke about was a platelet plug-induced formation because of estrogen. That is true regardless of how the estrogen is administered, but that compromises arteries, not veins. The increased clot risk that you're talking about is a clot in a vein. And that is seen more often among women who take estrogen orally than women who take it transdermally. The clot in the vein carries the risk of breaking off in the vein and traveling to the lung and causing a pulmonary embolus. That is rare. And by the way, follow-up of the Women's Health Initiative 20 years looking at the risk of pulmonary emboli found that there was no increased risk seen when the two groups, those taking hormones and those who didn't take hormones, were compared. The difference in risk of clots in the vein between the transdermal approach and the oral approach, which is real, is also very small. It might be about 5%. And among the women who develop a complication, the 5% is irrelevant. They develop the complication. But it shouldn't overwhelm a decision that is forced to look at many different factors going into the use of hormones. Beautiful. Yeah, I think so many people take that 10-year as an absolute concrete wall instead of a risk-benefit discussion. But the boomers are pissed. At first, there's fear. 
then you get educated. Then I think there's the anger and like my the evolution of watching people through this. Um, okay, I have two more questions. Thank you so much for your time. Any advice for younger physicians like me, Dr. Men, Dr. Hirsch, like people who are trying to get this fact-based stuff out because it's still overwhelmingly, we hear that the medical profession is not on board with hormones, let alone hormones after breast cancer. Any advice? I think what you and Dr. Men and Dr. Hirsch are doing is exactly right. You are trying to educate not just physicians, but the general public. As you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we used to treat women with radical mastectomy for breast cancer. In fact, if you understand that the people who developed the radical mastectomy thought incorrectly that cancer spreads by contiguous tissue spread so that the Holstead, who helped develop the radical mastectomy at Johns Hopkins in the late 19th century, said if the breast cancer extends to the hip, he would take off the breast and the hip as part of the same operation. Clearly, he didn't understand the nature of breast cancer, but the radical mastectomy came from that philosophy. And it was used until women not doctors, women said, no, doctor, I am not going to sign a consent form before I know what I'm dealing with. You will biopsy my tumor. And if I have cancer, you will wake me up. And at some point, we will have a discussion of my options. And only then will we form formulate a plan for what we do. I will not go to sleep, not knowing whether I'm going to wake up with a breast or without a breast. And by what you're doing, Kelly, you're looking to recreate that dynamic. And that's very important. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So my final question is like, do you think the world is just crazy? Like, <laughs> how do you cope? How do you cope with like the years and the years and the years and the longer we go past the Women's Health Initiative and now we have breast cancer and 5 million survivors suffering because they're not getting hormones. What gives you hope? How do you cope with thinking like the world's just too afraid and this is never going to turn? First, you and I are not lone voices. There are physicians all over the world who are espousing the things we are talking about, that they still represent a minority. But I've watched breast cancer go from a potentially lethal disease to, in 90-plus cases, a curable one. I've watched many cancers go from being a death sentence to being a nuisance, an unpleasant nuisance, but one you can deal with and get back to your life. And when you run a marathon, you don't focus on the next mile. You focus on the finish line, and you keep running. And that's all I know how to do. I love it. For for me, it's the women who message me. I just got one this morning and she's like, I was like bed bound and I had no idea it was menopause. And I started listening to you. She went and got on hormones. She's like as functional as she used to be bed bound. I'm like, that's what keeps me going. It's like hearing from those people. One of the sad things I find is doctors who don't open their minds to this aren't limited to men. Many female physicians are as close-minded and sadly as ill-informed. One physician I'd like to point out who's clearly different is Ann Partridge. Ann Partridge is the head of breast cancer research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center at Harvard. And Ann published, presented, and then published a paper where she said, I have a large population of premenopausal women who were on tamoxifen to help prevent recurrence of the breast cancer that we treated, and they want to have children. And so what she did was a study of several hundred of these women, allowing them to go off tamoxifen for two years, get pregnant, which 64% of them did, and then go back on tamoxifen, and the concern was, oh my God, the cancer will come back. No, 
there was no increased risk of recurrence. And we now know from work by people like Matteo uh, Lambertini in Italy that pregnancy and delivery after a diagnosis of successfully treated breast cancer is not associated with an increased risk of recurrence. And this is as true for women with estrogen receptor positive as it is for women with estrogen receptor negative breast cancer. Beautiful. We'll all keep doing the work. Thank you so, so much for coming onto my podcast and helping educate the women and the doctors and all the people. I, I couldn't be more honored that you're joining us today. It's my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com slash membership. I'll see you on the inside.